Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners. I'm Josh Popachak, your host for No Rain Date, your local news and information podcast covering Saucon Valley and beyond. I'm also the publisher of Saucon Source, and I'm here with some of the headlines that we've been covering for the week ending March 6th, 2021. You had a lot of exciting business news to share, and a lot of it has been food-related. So if you're not hungry when you're preparing to read Sock and Source, you might work up an appetite these days. Just in the last few days, we've had stories about a new pierogi business, a new barbecue business, and a specialty carrot cake business. So I'm going to talk about all three of those. I also wanted to highlight that on Thursday, March 4th, there was a ribbon cutting at the Vibe Nutrition in Hellertown, which is a new health-oriented shake and smoothie bar at 650 Main Street. It's actually just a couple doors down from Sock and Source. And they make some really great drinks, fruit bowls, energy shots. So if you're trying to be healthier, consume less sugar, that's a place you might want to check out. Everything I've had there is delicious. We had a story about it written by our freelancer, Holly Hoyt, in February. So you can find that on Sock and Source by searching on the site or just Google the Vibe Hellertown, and it should be near the top of the results. So congratulations to those guys. The Hellertown Lower Socken Chamber helped put together the ribbon cutting, and it was very well attended, and the owners, as well as Mayor David Heinzelman, spoke, as well as several officials from the chamber. We'll have photos of that on the Socken Source Facebook page, of course. Getting back to our more recent business coverage, the pierogi business is a partnership in a way between a local fire company and a startup business. The business is Forked Handmade Pierogies, and that's spelled fork like the utensil apostrophe D. And the owner is Abby Gordon. Abby was kind enough to talk to us about her business, and she's been in the food arena for some years in this area. She formerly owned a cafe in Coopersburg. I guess pierogies kind of became a specialty of hers, and she decided to make that her focus. She was able to locate kitchen space at the Liceville Fire Station, which is on Route 412 south of Hellertown, and that is one of the three stations that are part of Lower Saucon Fire Rescue. The partnership is really a win-win for the fire company because they're getting some revenue from somebody leasing their kitchen, and Abby now has a permanent home for her pierogi business, and it's quite a business. These are not just your grandmother's pierogies. Of course, she does have traditional varieties of pierogi, like potato, potato cheese, sauerkraut, but... She has dozens of other more exotic kinds of pierogies, and you can find the full menu on her website. That's linked to in our story. She has dessert pierogies. She has chicken barbecue and even seafood pierogies. I saw one that's crab meat and shrimp, and that made my mouth water. I think she has six different kinds of dessert pierogies, as I mentioned. One, I believe, has ricotta and blueberry and just some really inventive types of flavors and I'm excited to try them. I like traditional pierogies, of course. I myself have somewhat of an Eastern European background, so I grew up eating pierogies and they're just a very comforting food, as most of us know. I think we all are sort of in need of that right now, or most of us. Certainly, Abby is churning out comfort by the dozen, and they're really beautiful pierogies, too. I have to comment on that because, you know, handmade pierogies, if you buy them from a church sale, obviously they're delicious, but they're made with love, but they're sometimes a little bit 
rough around the edges. Now these pierogies, they almost look like little hand pies. They're perfectly crimped along the edges and just very attractive to look at in the pictures that I've seen. But they are all handmade and that's a lot of work. So obviously it's a labor of love for Abby and we wish her the best with that. We're excited for her to have this growing following in Saucon Valley and beyond because you can obviously enjoy them wherever you are by ordering them to pick up at the fire station. And like I said, we have information about her hours and how to order them in the story, which is on the Sock and Source homepage right now. Also this week, and also by Holly Hoyt, who wrote the Forked Pierogi story, we have a story about Nick's Barbecue. And this also has a fire station connection. Nick Binzak is the owner of Nick's Barbecue. He's a Saucon Valley native, and he started his barbecue business in his backyard a few years back. Got really into the sort of the art of barbecuing and the traditional Texas style, which involves smoking meats for a long time. He doesn't use any electricity during the process. He hand builds his fires. Obviously, he has a facility, a smoker, to produce these meats in. He also connected with Lower Saucon Fire Rescue, which was looking to lease their kitchen at the Sea White Go Fire Station, which is on Route 378. And he's there now. So that's two of their kitchens that are being put to good use. Nick is actually in the process of expanding his hours there to be open for lunch. And he's going to be open, I believe, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11.30 to 7, I think, Wednesday through Friday, and 11.30 to 5 on Saturday, starting March 10th. That information is in the article. His specialty, I guess you could say, is brisket, one of the specialties, and that is a favorite of mine. His looks absolutely mouth-watering. He smokes it for 12 to 14 hours. This is also a labor of love for, for him, and you can see that in the photos he shares. He has a great Instagram feed as well as Facebook. I would encourage you to uh, follow him on those channels and Forked Handmade Pierogies, too. Other foods that he makes obviously include like pulled pork sandwiches, spare ribs, basically any type of barbecue that that you can imagine. He's producing it. It does look very tasty. He's getting great reviews for his menu, and you can order online as well as call it in. So check out the story about Nick's and then Lastly, we have an article about a business that, once again, fire company connection. In this case, it's with Dewey Fire Company in Hellertown. We have reported recently about their new chef caterer, Joe Stout, who owns Chef Meals. And he's an advertiser on our site. We love Joe. Joe is creating a shared kitchen space at Dewey because... It is a large kitchen, and he wants to encourage other startups to do their thing and follow their passion and share their food with the community. And it also helps him, and whatever helps him helps the fire company. So again, we have a win-win. And in this case, one of the first people to share the kitchen with Joe is the maker of something called Bam's Carrot Cake. Her name is Paula McKinnis. She knows Joe from when they worked together in Easton, where they shared a kitchen space. And Paula uses her mother's beloved carrot cake recipe to create these little jelly jars that are layered with moist carrot cake and cream cheese icing. And I think, well, obviously it's delicious, but also the way that it's carefully and lovingly layered in this jelly jar and it's so easy to eat it out of the jar, you know, with a spoon. I think they're heavenly. And she's also adding another cake to her lineup, 7-Up Cake. So if you like a citrusy, lemony type of cake with a glaze, that's going to be available. 
our reporter, Johnny Hart, interviewed Paula for the story that was just published on Thursday. There's some photos in it. Joe also talks about his concept for the shared kitchen at Dewey. He's looking for other food business, you know, startups in the area. If, if you want to contact him about potentially partnering with him and uh, using the space, whether it's for a few hours a week or, or whatever your needs are, you can find the contact information in the article on sockandsource.com. It's just a really heartwarming story, though, because Paula's mother was obviously a passionate baker, Carol McInnes, and she passed away a few years ago. So in a way, this is a tribute to, to her that Paula is able to make this and share the recipe with the world, and it's bringing a lot of joy to everyone who, who eats it. You can order Bam's Carrot Cake along with Joe's food on his website, chefmeals.co. And Paula also has her own website for Bam's Carrot Cake. And that, of course, is linked in the story. She's on social media. Be sure to follow her. So you could actually plan a feast where your appetizer is forked pierogies, dinner, main course is Nick's Barbecue, and dessert is Bam's Carrot Cake. How about that? And, of course, don't forget Joe and, and Chef Meals. We're definitely eating well in the Saucon Valley these days, and I'm eating well, and I'm, I'm thankful to all these great new business owners for seeing the potential in this area and for everyone to just, you know, everyone for having this vision of community. Of course, grateful to Lower Saucon Fire Rescue for opening up their kitchens for, for use at this time when a lot of entrepreneurs are searching for new spaces. They may have lost their other space because of the economic downturn during COVID-19. So everybody's being flexible. Everybody's thinking outside the box right now, it seems. And that's that's pretty cool. That's when great things start to happen in, in business, in my experience. Please, you know, of course, always support our local businesses as much as you can. They're the lifeblood of our community, and we want to see them grow and prosper. I feel very privileged to be able to report on this type of news. And if you are an up-and-coming business owner in the area or you know of somebody who is, I would encourage you to reach out to me, please, with a tip about that. We love to cover local business stories. You can always email me at josh at sockandsource.com. Or, of course, you can contact me via the Sock and Source Facebook page. Just send a message and I will respond to it. However, email is probably the best way to reach me in general. And if you have a website or Facebook page, maybe include the link to it in the email, and I will I will definitely look into it. In other news, and there has been other news, plenty of it, we covered an unusual crime story this week, tipped off to it by the Richland Township Police Department, which put out a news release on their Crime Watch website. We follow them on Crime Watch. We follow all our local police departments on Crime Watch. It's a great resource to stay up to date with things like suspicious activity, missing pets. The police can use it in a variety of ways. In this case, they're trying to identify a suspect in a shoplifting case at the Giant Food Store at 901 Southwest End Boulevard, which is another name for Route 309. This is the giant in the shopping center with the Lowe's at the south end of Quakertown. On February 13th, day before Valentine's Day, a man who was captured on store surveillance entered the store on a motorized cart, the type that is often used by people with disabilities when they're shopping. I'm not clear if this was his cart or one of the store carts. It was not clear from the news release, but regardless, He used it to navigate through the store and then picked up items and motored right on out the door without paying for them, according to the police. And this is sort of where it gets even more interesting. Police say that the man who was wearing an orange hoodie with white block lettering, he then put the stolen items in the back of his pickup truck, which I thought it was interesting that the pickup truck was actually parked in the fire lane outside the store, which 
is obviously illegal. And if you want to attract the police's attention in a hurry, you can do that in a local shopping center. They tend to to zero in on that. But regardless, that didn't happen in this case. He put the items in the bed of the truck, which had snow in it because it had snowed a lot that week, and then went back in the store and allegedly stole flowers. Well, it was the day before Valentine's Day, so (laughs) I think I have a good idea what happened with those flowers. But not only did he go back in, he walked back in. That's the kicker. So one that makes you scratch your head, and I definitely did (laughs) while I was writing the story a few times, they have, like I said, surveillance footage of him, and police are asking the public to call in tips. You can also submit a tip about the case via their Crime Watch site. We have that linked in the story. You can do that anonymously. Richland Township Police, I know, really appreciate the help that they get from the public in combating all types of crime, but especially retail theft, because obviously Richland is home to quite a number of retailers, including large national chains. The shopping centers at either end of the Quakertown Strip are all in Richland Township. So that keeps the cops there very busy with the number of people that are in and out of those stores. And obviously the stores have their own security, but ultimately the police are still involved in a lot of these investigations. So I think you'll wanna read that story. Of course, we're following COVID vaccine news. Uh, We continue to do that week by week. Big news this week was the announcement by Governor Tom Wolf that Pennsylvania teachers are going to get priority in terms of the newly approved Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a one-dose vaccine, which gives it something of an advantage over the other two where you have to get two doses. The efficacy rate is similar. I believe it's slightly less than the two-dose vaccines, which are by Pfizer and Moderna, respectively. However, what I read is that although it's not quite as effective at preventing a case of COVID-19, it's just as effective in terms of preventing hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. So in other words, it's going to protect you from the severe complications of the disease, just as well as the other ones. The approval of the vaccine has not come without controversy. We have obviously been covering controversies related to the vaccine ever since there was talk of a vaccine. In this case, the Catholic diocese of Allentown has criticized the vaccine by Johnson & Johnson because it uses materials from aborted fetuses, cells, as part of the production process. And this is sort of causing a rift, even within the Catholic Church, uh, among pro-vaccine congregants and pro-life Catholics, and not just Catholics, others too. So Once again, unfortunately, we're in a situation where rather than coming together, COVID seems to be dividing us, and we don't need any more of that. I don't need to tell anybody that, but the good news for many teachers, like I said, is that they will be able to get this vaccine in the near future. According to the announcement put out by the state, the vaccinations are going to begin March 10th, There are going to be a large-scale sort of clinic set up at the IUs, the intermediate units throughout the state, and they expect to get all the teachers who want to be vaccinated their doses within about eight days or so. So this is going to be a relatively fast process. Of course, teachers are not required to get the vaccine neither is anyone. So it will be interesting to see what percentage of school teachers opt to receive it. In places like Saucon Valley, teachers have been teaching in person all year. So there's also differences between districts where some teachers have been part of hybrid models and not really spent a lot of time in the classroom, whereas in others they have. So I think the expectations are different from district to district and probably the fear factor and 
who knows what else. There, there are just an endless number of variables when it comes to this vaccine and COVID itself. We had another uplifting story, though, about COVID in which we shared the news put out by St. Luke's University Health Network of how many of their nursing students are helping to make history by vaccinating patients at the clinics that the hospital has set up. And I thought that was really a neat story. They're going to remember this for the rest of their lives. Many of the nursing students are young. They're in their 20s. And it's on-the-job learning experience for sure. That's often the best kind of education you can receive. So two thumbs up for, for those nursing students and for everybody who's working so hard to administer the vaccine in our communities, in our hospitals. We hope that uh, if, if you are eligible, when you are eligible, you will consider getting the vaccine to protect not only yourself, but those you love and other community members. Finally, we are coming into election season once again. This year, it's a local election year because it's an odd year, 2021. That's the easiest way to remember which years are local election years. They're always odd years. We have a couple of re-election campaign announcements that we shared this week. One was by Northampton County Councilwoman Lori Vargo Hefner. Lori is a uh, Lower Saucon Township resident who was first elected to Northampton County Council in 2017. She is a Democrat. She is currently the County Council President. We were happy to share her campaign re-election announcement. We also shared one by Hellertown Council President Tom Rieger. Tom has served faithfully on Hellertown Borough Council for many years, and as I said, he is currently the president of Borough Council. He is asking for voters' support to reelect him. He highlights his record and accomplishments in the announcement, as did Lori Vargo Hefner. So I would encourage you to check those out. We welcome campaign announcements from other candidates, and we certainly want to share as much information about the campaigns as possible with our readers. We know what happens when there is not a lot of information put out there about candidates. Voters are not able to make informed decisions at the polls, and that can have unfortunate and even tragic consequences. So as responsible members of the media here at Sock and Source, We want to do everything to inform you, our listeners, and our readers about the candidates. We can only do that, however, if we have some assistance from the candidates themselves and their campaigns. As I said earlier, you can always email me, josh at sockandsource.com, with your campaign announcement. Obviously, we're looking for local campaigns, Northampton County, Saucon Valley area, Southern Lehigh, Upper Bucks, that's our primary coverage area. If you are, you know, sort of on the borderline, feel free to send me your announcement. March 9th, I believe, is the deadline to file petitions. So after that, we will probably have more campaign news to share with you. The primary election in Pennsylvania this year is May 18th. That's a Tuesday. And obviously in Pennsylvania, If you voted here before, you know it's a closed primary. It's open only to Republicans and Democrats. Sorry, independents. You can vote in the general election, but the way Pennsylvania system works, the primary is not open to independents. And the last day to register to vote is Monday, May 3rd. I would recommend visiting a website called votespa.com where you can register to vote online. You can find your polling place if you're not sure where you're going to be voting. It's kind of a one-stop shop set up by the state for voters, and there's tons of information on there. There's also information related to COVID-19 on there, votespa.com. It's a really useful resource. And of course, continue to follow sockandsource.com for election news, COVID news, and all the local news we enjoy bringing you every week. We'll see you back here next week. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. 
a large part of that is a public service. And we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community. And it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source, which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options, including a monthly membership for $7, a four month membership for $25 or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. It's my pleasure this week on No Rain Date to welcome our special interview guest, Alan Jennings, who is the executive director of the Community Action Committee of the Lehigh Valley, an organization that's been in existence for about 55 years, and Alan has been with it for over 40 years. So he has an incredible record of service to the community, and thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. How, am I dressed right for this? <laughs> yes, we are still interviewing over the phone for COVID safety, and we do miss interviewing our guests in person. We'd love to. I'd love to meet you in person when it's safe to do that. But well, maybe someday we'll be able to again. <laughs> Crazy I world. hope so. I mean, it's. It seems like we're we're moving in the right direction now. So. Yeah, um, I hope so too. Maybe later this year we'll we'll be able to do those things again. But I wanted to start off with you sort of talking a little bit about the history of the organization for those who may not be familiar with CACLV and then also how you became involved with it and and you've really devoted your life to it. It's been your life's work. So want to learn a little bit more about that. Can I have the whole hour for the history? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this is from the old Johnson administration Great Society program, you know, the War on Poverty. The community action agencies were, were the cornerstone in local communities of the whole concept of the War on Poverty. The, the idea was that they would organize low-income people and teach them how to fight City Hall and, and speak up for themselves and get them some political power. And yet, at the same time, local communities were, were basically had to invite the federal government into their community to do this. And so in 1964, the Lehigh Valley Community Council, which was the planning arm of the United Way, undertook the responsibility of deciding whether or not we wanted a community action agency. And and the two counties had to agree to welcome the funding in and, and the organization, and they did. And so the community council's board of directors had a committee looking at this this question, it was called their Community Action Committee. And so when they incorporated it, they just gave it the name, Community Action Committee of Lehigh Valley. A lot of people wonder where the heck the name came from. And it's a little bit of a challenge because it doesn't say anything, but it, yet it says so much at the same time. Mm-hmm. That we were tasked at the time with the responsibility of, of bringing many of the anti-poverty programs into the Lehigh Valley. So for example, and, and, and these programs were designed to help people overcome the obstacles to self-sufficiency. So, you know, if your kids were getting to school and they were well behind their middle-class counterparts, they created the Head Start program, which is early childhood education for three- and four-year-olds. We created Head Start in Lehigh Valley. Hmm. If the issue was, you know, access to civil 
representation in, in the courts. You know, you might be discriminated against because you're a woman or a person of color. They created a legal services corporation. Our agency started the Lehigh Valley Legal Services, what's now called North Penn Legal Services. Okay. The issue was job training. They created what was then called the Neighborhood Youth Corps. It went on to become the Lehigh Valley Manpower Program, which became the Private Industry Council and is today's career link. So we had a lot to do with all of the anti-poverty programs being created in Lehigh Valley. I never realized that you that your reach was that expansive. Yeah, yeah, we were in the middle of all that. Now, of course, there was plenty of controversy that went with it. In the 70s, the organization really kind of lost its way at the same time as the American people were starting to lose their willingness to, you know, to help their, their low-income neighbors out. You know, when you, have, when you can afford it, you're much more likely to help your, your neighbors out, you know. And the American economy was like on the top of the world in the 60s. and the 70s, it started to decline, in part because of OPEC and their oil embargo, in part because of the inflationary push pressures of running a war without, you know, in, with deficit spending. And so 78, Congress gets a jolt. A ton of the old liberals get knocked out. George McGovern, Frank Church, Birch Bayh, John Bradamus, you know, Warren Magnuson. And then 1980, the conservative revolution is solidified in Ronald Reagan's election. And that's when I started. <laughs> so Ronald, Ronald Reagan gets elected in November of 1980. I start with CACLV in December of 1980. And it couldn't have been a worse time to do it. So Reagan, he wanted to cut all the social welfare programs. He didn't believe in helping people. He didn't believe in government. And yet here he is at the head of the government. He proposed eliminating the community action agencies funding altogether. Hmm. And so Congress didn't want to go along with that, but they did compromise and they created a block grant that was turned over to the states to administer. Pennsylvania looked at uh, what they were supposed to do and said, well, we're going to check these groups out. They had an independent audit done. And Lehigh Valley came out fourth worst out of 34 agencies in Pennsylvania, with uh, the good luck being that Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Reading were worse than us. Mm. So they couldn't throw us all out. They put us on probation. We got put on probation for three months. And without getting into any further detail, we came out of it a few months after that. Two of us kids, we were both 24 years old, a woman named Sandy Murphy and I, found ourselves in the one and two spots in the organization. At the time, the agency was about 16 people. We laid off seven mm. and basically started the agency all over again from nothing. So 1982, we had a half a million dollar budget, nine employees. Today, we have a $30 million budget and 100 employees. We own $9 million worth of real estate, free and clear. And we've got a lot of muscle out there pushing the community around, trying to get it to do the right thing for people who are left behind. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible growth, obviously, for for nearly 40 years. Well, and amazingly, last week we doubled our budget from 30 to 60 million. <laughs> it's a little bit of a distortion because basically we're going to be running two pass-through programs where basically money's coming to us and going to people in the community. So $24 million is going to people who have emergency rent assistance, both landlords and tenants, because of the eviction moratorium. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to be handling $7 million in direct assistance for businesses in the hospitality industry. So we go from $30 million to $60 million in five days. <laughs> wow. And, and as far as your, I, I wanted to touch on your funding sources, because it, it, they are somewhat diverse. I mean, I, I think people probably, the first thing they think is you're getting money directly from the federal government. But I mean, and that is a part of it, but but explain a little bit about what all the different sources are and and how you are somewhat self-sustaining, too, with, with the programs that you have and, and revenue. Well, you know, there are about 1,100 community action agencies all around the country. They've got different names. They might not be recognizable. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them are pretty bad. But most of them run government-funded programs. We've made a very deliberate effort to reduce the dependency on that government funding. So we are actually about 30% government funded and 70% non-government funding. That's unheard of in the community action world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's even rare among most nonprofits, but 
I made a very deliberate effort to diversify our funding sources so that if we took a hit, it wouldn't cripple the agency, you know, so that, you know, we might lose a $25,000 grant here, but make up for it over there, you know. And so the agency is very healthy financially. It doesn't mean we don't need tons of additional resources because there are tons of unmet needs out there, but the agency is a strong organization that people can trust to be there and do things right. Right. Certainly that that seems like that was a wise decision. And after looking at the last four years, I mean, I can only imagine how your funding would have been impacted to a greater extent, probably, if you were not so self-sufficient. And yeah, what, the one thing that we don't have a lot of is earned income, you know, where we have sales or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the Y gets a lot of money from from people joining their, you know, the joining the, the, the Y, you know, and hospitals make a lot of money, you know, charging insurance companies, and colleges make a lot of money charging tuition. We, we don't have that advantage. I'm trying to find some things, like for example, we're doing a lot of housing rehab work now, and uh, you know, buying ratty properties and dressing them up and, and putting them back on the market. But we haven't found a way to make money doing it yet. We're actually at break even right now. We lost about $400,000 over the last couple of years, you know, getting to where we need to be. And we're there now, but I don't know how long it'll be before we actually can make enough money to, to make an impact, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, and the need it continues to to grow. It seems. I wanted to talk. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about some of the issues that that are in the news today and have been, especially in the last year. But first, I guess I wanted to just talk about twenty twenty, and I mean, like the issues that arose over inequality are the issues that you've basically been fighting you know for the last 40 years so was that ever frustrating was it was it validating in a way that that well it's you know my life is a series of one step up two steps back kinds of kinds of frustrations you know and and covid was you know one step up you know a a mile back you know i mean it's it's been it's opened up so many wounds and and uh, and then you add the murder of george floyd and other victims of of you know racist brutality and everything and it was a disastrous year and and i think you may have seen our annual report we put a you know a pretty aggressive one out there but you know we had a tough year but this is a tough agency and and believe it or not we actually came out stronger in large part because we run the second harvest food bank and that's like the front line for assistance of for people who are struggling you know we had a 45% increase in distribution of food this year. We have a record of 11.8 million pounds of food that we distributed. Since I started the, what was then called the Lehigh Valley Food Bank back in October of 1982, we've distributed something like 150 million pounds of food. Wow. That's, that's, it's fantastic and it's, well, it's sad a, at the same time. It's like a good news, bad news. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the good news is we distributed 180, I mean, 11.8 million pounds of food. The bad news is we distributed 11.8 million pounds of food. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, because the the need reflects the need failure of yep. policy over many many years, and it the food bank really doesn't get to the root of the the root issues of hunger. That's right. We have to have it because people, you know, you can't figure out what your career goals are when you aren't sure where your next meal is coming from. Right. But at the same time, you know, you, you're not going to solve any problems. You know, you're going to put them off, really. I mean, and we don't, we don't like doing charity. You know, charity is what you do when you don't have justice. Charity is, you know, getting food assistance out of food pantry. Justice is a job that pays the bills. That's what we'd much rather do, you know, is help people become self-sufficient, be able to pay their own bills. Nobody wants. Nobody likes to get handouts. It's you feel ashamed and, and you feel like a loser, you know. So we'd much rather shut down the food bank and because we don't need it and make people right. That's the way I think you want to fight poverty, not by you know papering it over with a little bit of food assistance. Right. I think what I guess what 2020 made clear clearer probably for many people is that you can't really fight poverty until you fight all of the 
issues that that contribute to it, like systemic racism. And I, I don't think that was quite as as obvious maybe until COVID sort of like ripped ripped things open for ripped people's eyes open in a lot of cases. Do you think that there could be a silver lining then in some way? Yeah, I hate to use the term because it, it's, I mean, it's not silver. <laughs> right. It's like a rag or something, but there's a lining there. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've gotten lots of new donors that we've never seen before. Lots of people bumping up their check amounts by, by a lot. I mean, it's been extraordinary, really. You know, somehow we've got to get people to, to move on from there, though, you know, actually tackling and solving real, you know, the problems in real ways. And there's lots of ways to do that, and we're doing that. I mean, in fact, CHLB is not a human service agency like it was 40 years ago when I started. It's a community development organization, you know? Mm-hmm. We do neighborhood revitalization. We, we, we have houses. We help people buy homes. We help people start their business, their own businesses. We make small business loans, you know? Things that are economic opportunity-oriented that are, in my judgment, the real solution to fighting poverty. Right, and I did want to touch on that too. You helped a lot of businesses during 2020 through economic aid, you know, that you were able to make available. And many of these were minority-owned, women-owned businesses who traditionally are are at more of a disadvantage. Do you see that continuing? Do you think the the aid is going to continue to flow for those businesses if it's needed? Well, yeah, yeah, it's a secret. I mean, that's what it feels like because there's all these articles about the PPP program and there were other, you know, kinds of direct assistance. The Chamber of Commerce did a little thing, you know. Well, we were part of, we have a a part of the agency called, it's called the Community Development Financial Institution. It's a federally chartered financial institution that's not a bank. And we do small business lending. We've lent something like nine and a half million dollars to almost 300 businesses and very little charge-offs and you know so they were complaining that all that government aid wasn't getting to the smallest businesses it wasn't getting to minority-owned businesses so some of the money got passed on to the states the state picked our cdfi network and we we turned out something like 195 million dollars and half of the people who got assistance from this project were minority-owned businesses now suddenly we have another $7 million to distribute between Lehigh and Northampton counties and we'll be putting that out on the street directly on behalf of the hospitality industry in mm-hmm. $10,000 grants. So my hope is that we're going to save a lot of these little food-related businesses, keep those people in their jobs, keep them proud of what they've done, and help this economy get back to where it needs to be so that we and take on, you know, the other issues that are facing us. Right, like the little mom-and-pop type little restaurants, corner yeah. stores. Yeah, but there are so many battles to wage out there. I mean, the, the injustice in how public school funding is, is doled out is, a, is an outrage. And the mental health system is, is minimal and, and inadequate. And, you know, there are so many other problems. Homelessness and housing affordability is uh, at a crisis stage. I mean, yeah, you go on and on and on, you know? I, I want to take those on. I don't want to deal with the pandemic anymore, you know? Right. Yeah, it, it's put up plenty of roadblocks as far as addressing, like, those bigger issues. What about the minimum wage? That's that's a big topic of debate right now at the federal oh, level man. in Congress. And it's not a new debate. It's been going on for years, but it it seems like we might finally get some type of action on that. Where do you stand? And I don't know what about do you... that. You know, the Senate took the the minimum wage out of the stimulus, so that's dead for now. But here's the thing. The minimum wage was created, I think it was 1932, maybe 1933. It was a Roosevelt initiative, and the idea was that a single head of household of, with three people in the family, which in those days was a husband, wife, and a kid, that if they worked full-time, the minimum wage would lift them out of poverty. That was the case from 1933 till 1980 when Ronald Reagan got elected. In every year during that span, except for 1958, which is, of course, the year I was born, 
But since 1980, the minimum wage has never been adequate to accomplish that goal. And, you know, so getting it to $15 is, is absolutely appropriate. And they're fighting that, you know? And, right. and it should have gone up to $15 an hour two or three years ago already. And we're having the same old stupid debate. So what really needs to happen is they need to get it to a good level and then index it to inflation. I don't care if it comes after inflation, but it needs to keep up with inflation. We shouldn't have to fight this battle every three to five years. The current minimum wage has been in place longer than any other single amount has been in the, what, 90 years of the minimum wage history. Yes, and yet I still hear people say, well, well that's, that's plenty of money, you know? Like, <laughs> it's... Well, I like to see people live on it, you know? I mean, $15 an hour is better than 12 It's better than seven twenty-five, you know, but it's not... It's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna pay for your kids to go to college. It's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna pay for you to own a very, you know, much of a house and so on, you know. So. No, and and the art wage has got to go up. That's like that's the most fundamental government policy that should be a no-brainer. Right. I personally agree with that. The the argument I was hearing from some senators was that they didn't want it to be fifteen dollars an hour because, well, that's what you need in in maybe areas like the Lehigh Valley and, you know, Peoria or something, that's, you know, they think somebody's going to be living like a king making that much, so it should be 10 or something, but then what that doesn't help people here in the Lehigh Valley, so... Well, it's, it's the same old, same old, you know, I mean, who, whose side are you on? Are you with the people who need to pay their bills, or are you with the people who, if the people can't pay their bills, aren't going to be able to sell their product, you know? Right. That's the thing that people don't understand. If you can't afford to buy a toaster, the folks who make toasters aren't going to make any money. <laughs> you know? Right. If you can't afford to buy a car, the folks who buy cars aren't going to be able to afford to buy cars. You know? So, you know, this is a consumer-based economy that we've got. If money isn't churning, if money isn't circulating, the economy is going to be a disaster. So... People have to have enough money to buy stuff so that they can make the economy work. And that's real simple economics. And I don't understand why that's so hard to get that understood. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about a quote that I read that you said. You said, I want to be judged at least as much by who my enemies are as by who my friends are. What did you mean by that? And, And that's sort of an interesting spin on the traditional quote. Yeah, well, you know, there are a lot of creeps out there doing awful things. <laughs> you know, and, and I've taken them on over the years. I've, I've, I've taken on, you know, in pretty substantive ways, slum landlords, predatory lenders, insurance companies, banks. You know, when somebody is contributing to the problem instead of the solution, I want them to consider me to be their enemy. <laughs> Because there is a very, very clear line, I think, in most cases between what's right and what's wrong. I think most people understand where that line is. And most people understand, you know, where they should be on that line. But there are always uh, that element that just can't seem to, you know, to get it right, you know. And those are the people I'm coming after if, if I, you know, if I get the opportunity. And mm-hmm. if they hate my guts, that means I made life miserable for them. And that's okay with me. Right. Right. Well... If it's for a cause of, you know, standing up for somebody that can't stand up for themselves and, you know, that doesn't even seem like like it would be a question, uh, you have to do the right thing. You would think. (laughs) As you mentioned, you're planning to retire in a couple of months in May, and I know you announced that back in the fall. Was that a difficult decision to come to after being part of the organization for that long? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have lived this place for my entire adult life. You know, I never thought I'd be in the same place for 40 plus years. And it feels kind of weird. It almost feels, you know, like I'm like some kind of a relic. But I live for, you know, trying to make the world a better place for people who are you know left out. And I'm moved by injustice. I'm moved by pain. And I'm not going to let it happen if I can if I can if I can avoid it. So anytime you you know we're 
whether it's somebody in pain, somebody suffering, that's where you'll find me. And you know, I you know, I don't know where I go when I'm not doing that anymore. But but the decision was not made by me, really. I mean, it was made by my health. I, I have Parkinson's. I've had it for 15 years. I'm doing okay, all things considered. But I'm not as good as I used to be, and I didn't think it would be fair to continue to build an organization that was, you know, that I couldn't keep up with anymore. Mm-hmm. I've stretched this organization to its limits. I mean, just today I had people in my office threatening to quit if I didn't stop, you know, taking on new challenges, and <laughs> you know that's that's just an affliction I have, and so I can't help myself. But I'm not as good as I used to be. I mean, it's just that simple. And almost three years ago. I could project where I was going based on, you know, how the Parkinson's was feeling. And I told my board then that I thought I was not going to be able to do it more than three more years. So I gave them a retirement date of May 2023. They are close to finding, well, I'm not sure where they are actually, but the, the board is working on hiring my replacement. And I'm going to wish that person the best. I'm going to do everything I can to support him or her. But it breaks my heart to have to to have to even say this stuff because I've I've you know I've spent my whole adult life trying to trying to make this organization as you know as effective and as efficient and successful as it is you know they're they're gonna have some some shoes to fill that's for sure well I appreciate that <laughs> but I my feet are really small I wear size nine <laughs> and six foot two so it's that difficult. <laughs> What are some of your proudest or cornerstone achievements, accomplishments that that really stand out in your mind from your tenure? Well, I wouldn't call. I wouldn't say any one project really. I would say what I'm proudest of is that I've I've challenged this community. I've taken on a lot of powerful people and won, and you know they still support me. You know they they still. I mean, somehow I've been able to, you know, point out the flaws of, of our community and and motivate people to be, you know, with me and, and trying to fix it, you know. I mean, the Lehigh Valley's got a very progressive business community. That doesn't mean they didn't vote for Trump, but they're also, you know, they're also very sensitive to the needs of their community in a lot of different ways. And, you know, frankly, my best allies have been corporate Republicans. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and so... You know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be sorry to lose those you know friendships. I mean, I, you know, I'll still see people, I'll still be getting around, but I, I won't have the opportunity as much as I have uh, over these years. You know, but that that's probably what I'm proudest of is that is that I've been able to challenge the system, and the system still says, hey, James, here's some support. Let's go pick somebody else. Uh, you know, pick on somebody else now. You know. <laughs> right. That's that's interesting. I would not have expected to hear that but i guess maybe i don't know why why would you think that the republicans would be so much in support of your goals when you're essentially a social justice organization yeah and those values don't align with the values of the party seemingly i have been so baffled by how in god's name donald trump has 70 got 74 million votes I mean, most Republicans I know are good people. They want to do the right thing. You know, they, they disagree with me on how to get there sometimes. But, you know, my experience is that they're, they're just good people. They're good, decent people. They, apparently, when they get together and do politics together, they they turn into, like, you know, Mr. Hyde, you know, from Dr. Jekyll. I mean, I mean, whoever could support what happened on January 6th, and yet 18% of the Republicans polled by uh, NPR support supported the insurrection they are they supported a treasonous act it's unbelievable to me you know right. this is not just standard republican versus democrat partisanship this is a sick man and his wacko goofy uh supporters overthrowing our democratically elected system i mean it's, it's crazy right <laughs> and, and some of them are saying they, they agreed with the insurrection and not yeah, I was just going to say, not only that, I mean, what is worse for business than an insurrection? I mean, destroying f- yeah. physical property and threatening people's lives doesn't exactly boost the economy, yeah. unless you're yeah, gun yeah, sales. You know, what's amazing is, if you look back at 
presidential elections that have, that have come before this one that I've been able to witness, you know, and I, I would say I've been paying attention since I was about 10 years old. But any one of the things that Trump did would have, have, have felled uh, presidents before him, you know, dalliances with women, corruption, secret deals, you know, every one of them took off. I mean, remember, Gary Hart got, well, he's probably too young, but 1984, Gary Hart was the front runner for running against Reagan. He had a, a, a model, very attractive young woman sitting on his lap on a sailboat or something, <laughs> and it got picked up and, and, and became, and knocked him off in a few days. Mm-hmm. Here's Trump's got, you know, what, a dozen women filing suit against him for aggravated assault? And he survived that. He hired a prostitute. He survived that. He's got corruption charges all over the place. He survived it. You know, what is, why are people giving him that pass? I don't get it. Even even now his you own. Have me ranting, you know? <laughs> well, no, I I have question marks floating above my head here. I mean, I was listening to the audiobook version of Mary Trump's book, "Too Much and Never Enough," about about Donald Trump, and I mean, even his own family members did not think that he would make it as far as he did, and he kept clearing every hurdle, and they're like, "Well, he's not going to do that. He's not going to." you know, survive this one. And then sure enough. So I think it's, it's baffled the, the greatest of minds, you know, how this, how this, I, I think the man is the most dangerous person on the planet. I really do. And I was embarrassed to be an American with him in the white house. And this guy is going to haunt our country for the rest of his life. I guarantee it because he has to be, he has to attract attention to himself. He, he lives off of it. He eats, sleeps, sweats, and cries that attention. So he's going to do anything he can, and the press is going to dutifully cover it, and he's going to be back in there. Guarantee it. It's sick. It's just sick. I, I get his news releases because he can't tweet anymore. Just about every day there's a new one, and it's interesting because, like, there's, even if, no matter how short it is, there's, like, a threat sort of, like, woven into, like, every <laughs> every paragraph. And it's yeah. like, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. So I don't understand, you know, it's hard to... Yeah, so, somebody, somebody did a study and they, they identified something like 30,000 lies that he, mm-hmm. he, he, he made. 30,000, he lied to, to us 30,000 times. Yeah. When I watched the debate between him and Joe Biden, I kept yelling at the television, point out that he's a liar. Just, just point out what a liar he is, that he has lied to you over and over, you know, lied to us over and over and over. I mean, that should be all you need to do. They say you cannot believe a word he's saying because he has lied to you over and over and over. But, <laughs> no, there he is, getting away with it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has to have, like, a scroll bar, like, attached to him with, like, fact-checking on it or yeah. something as he goes around. because. Yeah. It's unbelievable, the, like you said, the number and the increasing frequency, too, because, you know, well, yeah. he started from day one, but by he the made end... It all up. He and Rush Limbaugh, they, I mean, they, they made it all up. They just were winging it as they went. And they, they came up with some whoppers, you know? Right. Well, one of my last questions, which I don't know how you're going to answer this now, but it was going to be, you know, do you have any sense of optimism now that the administration has changed for you know, fighting these battles and and winning some of these battles, perhaps finally you know the battles that you've been fighting all these years. Obviously, the Biden administration has some ambitious goals on the social justice front and many others that are aligned with the progressive movement. But they have obstacles in their way, including a very divided Senate, Supreme Court. Where do you see things? going in the next couple of years. Let me start by saying that I, I've always said that I'm cynical enough to know what I'm up against, but optimistic enough to pick the fight anyway. So, you know, I, I have enough optimism to keep at it, although Trump was doing a pretty good job of killing that even. But absolutely, there is no question whatsoever that the Congress being in Democratic hands with the Democratic White House there will be, it will be different. Democrats aren't as good at street fighting as Republicans are. Republicans are better at the messaging. 
and Democrats Democrats make me crazy with their their inability to come up with the kind of sales pitch that Republicans are very effective at. But um, look, you know, we as an organization since 1980 when I got here, what's that? How many presidents said it's two Reagan terms, uh, a Bush H uh, W Bush, two W Bushes, and one Trump term. That's five presidents over, you know, how many years since I got here, and every single Republican president, every single year in office, zeroed out our funding in their budget proposals. And in every case, the money was restored, and we're still here. So even when the bad guys in the White House, we have survived. And so I plan to hang out here with the cockroaches, you know, when the apocalypse comes and make sure that this community action agency is still, you know, providing services. <laughs> well, you must have nerves of steel by this point. Jeez, I mean, that's that's a lot of close shaves over that amount of time and, you know, yeah. hanging yeah, on. So, what, yeah, so it was two, four, six, 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 24 out of the last... Uh, Whatever number of years, forty. I mean, we're 40 still here, so we're going to be here. Well, that's I know. I'm sure that's reassuring to the thousands of people that are served by you, whether it's like through the Second Harvest Food Bank, through housing assistance, and and in many other ways. And yeah, uh, when we we started this conversation, we talked about the agency's history, but I didn't talk about the, the programs we run. I mean. I've, I've kind of touched on a few of them in the course of the conversation, but we've got all kinds of cool stuff going on out there, and I would encourage people to look at our website. There's a lot of good information there. Check us out if we can be helpful. Great. If you can be helpful to us, that would be great. So, And I appreciate opportunities like this to, to talk with you about what's going on out there. We definitely want to highlight some of the programs, and yes, there are many and we've we've written about a few of them in the past. I believe it was an education initiative that is part of CACLV. Yeah, Generation Next. Yes, that's good. That's good stuff. You know, let me just pass along three data points that are as compelling as anything I've heard about racial inequity. Seventy-nine percent of white suburban high school students in the Lehigh Valley take college entrance exams: the SAT, ACT. 79%, park that for a second. 8% of urban Latinos take the SAT. Hmm. Okay, so white suburban kids are 10 times more likely to take the SAT than their Latino urban counterparts. 4% of urban African Americans take the SAT. So white kids are 20 times more likely to, to take the SAT than their African-American counterparts. That data by itself is the most compelling data you can find that explains the vast disparities in income and wealth that exist between white and minority households in not just this country, but this community in particular. And it's a disgrace to our claims you know, to being civilized people. And it raises questions about our faith and how seriously we must take it if we're letting that happen. It raises questions about our morality and it raises questions about whether or not we have any concern for our future. You know, when you get stuff like that, you can't help but, you know, use it to, to really fight the battle that, that has to be fought. That's, yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because that is a staggering and, and really kind of a heartbreaking statistic, especially yeah. given that, you know, we've known this is an issue for decades. I mean, I remember that as, you know, as a teenager, probably, you know, for I think it was the United Negro College Fund and the mind is a terrible thing to waste. Well, that was, yeah, you know, exactly. yeah. 30 years ago. So, yeah. you know, why are things even worse apparently now? I mean, it's just yep. how many minds have been wasted in that time? Millions, probably. Well, and they're being wasted in prisons, you know. I mean, they, they, you know, there's the pipeline, you know, mm-hmm. going up our coming. We incarcerate more people than any country on the planet. Than I, and I think, uh, I think South Africa might be ahead of us, but we are a disgrace in that sense. And, and there's, these are things that we can fix if we just put a little bit of effort into it, you know? 
Well, we'll have to see what, yeah, see what transpires in these next months and years. And certainly, although you're leaving, you know, CACLV, we'd love to have you on again to sort of check in and, you know, see where we're at and see if things have changed I'll on be happy some of these to do fronts. It. Yes, like you said, you have an excellent website. I would encourage everybody to check it out at caclv.org and you'll find your annual report on there. There's a great video with you in it, front and center on the homepage. It's sort of a five minute montage of you know you speaking about some of the, the issues and, and also the challenges of 2020. They can connect with you know the organization on the website and I'm sure there's ways to make a donation too if, if that's something that they yep. feel moved to do. But thank you, Alan, so much for taking the time to talk with us and share your, well, your thank, wealth Well, thanks for thinking that we were worthy. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Like I said, we will definitely continue to cover the these issues that affect the entire Lehigh Valley and particularly the communities that are affected by poverty. And that's, that's something that's thanks important to us. Thanks for, for all of your encouragement. Absolutely. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening.